as you're turning there, my wife and I have been kind of having back trouble, and I got to thinking, why would we have back trouble at the same time? And then I just realized it's probably because of that fat baby over there. <laughs> so, chubby baby, which is a blessing. Healthy baby. Praise God. <coughs> okay, let's pause and pray. Father, we brought you praise, we brought you thanks, and Lord, we also bring you uh, broken and contrite hearts, we bring you our repentance, we bring our need for your forgiveness, we need your cleansing and your mercy, Lord, we need your help. So I pray that those riches would fall on your people even now, that they would know that you are ready and willing to dispense your mercy. Lord, I thank you that your desire is for our good and that your will is our growth. And so we bring all the confidence and faith that we have in you doing that. We ask you to do that now in this hour in which we open your word and we feast from this bread of life, Lord, that it would bring us more nourishment than any meal we could sit down and enjoy. And so I just ask that you would do this now in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to break down chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, I think I'd break it down this way. You start with God's will, which is our sanctification or our growing in Christ's likeness. And that plays out in a few ways. Number one, the the love and honor that we have for our bodies and the body, which is what we'll talk about today. That we are, that we're respecting the holiness, that we're growing in the holiness of God by making sure first that our bodies are holy and doing holy things and that the body is holy and doing holy things. And then he ends chapter 4 with encouragement and hope. That in case you're tempted to get bogged down with living a righteous life in the midst of trouble and temptation and persecution, there is hope. There is hope at the return of Christ when all things will be set to right and when there will be no more struggle in which we will uh, know these things perfectly and we will be made perfect in them. But until that point, Paul continues his exhortation and his teaching of the Thessalonians by further pressing into what brotherly love looks like. And one thing that we need to notice that he is doing is he's commending them, but he's commending them under uh, the light of the fact that they are not yet glorified. So there may be encouragement for how things are progressing, 
But there is not a moment of arrival, like you guys have made it. You're doing it. It's over. I'll stop talking about it. But he just further presses in with encouragement on the things that they are doing. And he says that if you do them more and more, he says that probably three times in this letter. He says, you're doing this thing. You're following Christ in this way. Now do it more and more. In other words, abound or grow in your riches of doing that thing. And he can say that um, because God is doing it. We would simply grow weary of doing good, especially in the face of persecution like the Thessalonians are doing and are living in, if not for the fact that he ends the letter reassuring that God will do this. So when he tells them, keep doing this more and more, keep pressing into these things, it means keep learning, keep growing, keep being discipled, which is to keep learning Christ. It is a terrible thing when you speak to someone that has reached their later years and they acknowledge a false idea that they have already heard all this, already understood it all, and, you know, this is for the younger crew that needs to learn this. No, we, we are not yet glorified, which means we are being sanctified, made into the image of his son. Therefore, uh, it doesn't matter how old we get and how long we've been in this, we are not perfect. We need to know. We have opportunity to do this more and more. And that is how you are to look at the Christian life, is opportunity. Opportunity even when you don't see it as opportunity. As the film reminded us last night, the life of people that are living under persecution, and yet they view it as an opportunity through the Spirit to press in with the gospel for God's glory and these people's eternal good. And so we continue to abound and grow and abound and grow in these things. And it, it begins to beg the question, well, what does that look like, right? What does that look like to abound, to do these things more and more? And I'll tell you how you're going to know that it's happening more and more. Because Christ church is to be labeled, is to be known, is to be characterized by their love for one another, as one ancient scholar put it, uh, the ancient church had become so known by their love for one another throughout the ancient world that it was very clear that any of them was willing to die for another at a moment's notice. They were willing to give all that they had because of their love in Christ for one another. And so when people begin to say, hey, FBC Holt, uh, I, you know, they love each other, period. Like, they're doing things that, that I've never even done for my own family. Th there is something that is stirring those people up to act in such ways that it is out of this world. And, and the more people catch on to that, the more you hear that, the more that that becomes what we're known for, then you'll know that we are doing this more and more. And it's not a case to put it on cruise control 
or autopilot like we have nowadays and just go on down the highway. No, it should be used for encouragement to keep pressing in. Keep the path. Keep on the journey. Don't pull over. Keep moving forward. I heard uh, John Piper one time mention a uh, retired couple in his church. They were in their 70s, and since retirement is an American concept, they knew they had work left to do for the Lord, right? So in their mid-70s, they found themselves uh, somewhere overseas sleeping underneath a bus because they were in a worn, torn area, and it wasn't safe to sleep high above the ground in case a bullet came through your tent at night. And, and, and that is not to say, okay, that is the way that you live in these things more and more. That's an example, an extreme example. But it's an example of recognizing that to do these things more and more means that as I have life and as I have breath and the assignment that the Lord gives me, I am to continue to walk in. And in my particular case, there, there, is, there is no, unless I become deaf and mute and dumb and blind and lame all at the same time, there, there is no reason to stop doing this. Your particular place in the body, you're doing one thing, and that is your assignment, and there's no reason to quit doing that. It may change an assignment as your body grows older and weaker, but it is no reason to not continue on in the assignment that the Lord has for you. And that's exactly what he's speaking about in these verses 9 through 12 today. So that was a long intro to get us to verse 9. And now he begins. Now concerning brotherly love, or concerning Philadelphia, because right, that's the, that's the Greek word that means brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania uh, is the city of brotherly love, or it's, that's what it was named for. Um, and, and so that's what we're looking at. And if you look in John 13, 34, Jesus speaks about this love. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a big statement. A lot of times we don't equate Christ's love with how we love one another. A lot of times we say, okay, Christ loved us in this way, a major way, with perfect love, and then we love each other with a different kind of love. No. It says, as I have loved you, love each other. And so you begin to be drawn again to the Gospels and, and to recognize all along the way how Jesus loved his brothers, how he loved them, what he gave up for them. And Jesus says, no greater love is known than that someone lay down his life for his brother. And so when the ancient church was characterized with that statement, they would they would quickly uh, give their lives for one another. They were walking in Christ-like love. Such 
were those faithful brothers and sisters during World War II who were, who were loving each other to the point of death. Such were, are those probably still around the world in various countries and various places who are loving each other even to the point of death. That's loving as Christ loved. That is what he calls the church to do for one another. So you simply can't, can no longer recognize the church as just a place where you meet up with some people that have a similar faith to yours. No, the church has to be recognized as the living, breathing body of Christ, more specifically the family that exists in the kingdom of God. And if you don't recognize it as such, either you haven't looked into it, experienced that kind of love, or you don't want that kind of love from these people. But the more we look into that, the more the world's going to look into that. And you will have a concentrated evangelistic effort simply by the fact that we exist together in a family where Christ is the head. We have a good father who has endowed us with all ability to love as he loved. One thing I recognized from before Christ to after Christ is I did not know what love was. You know, like Forrest Gump said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. That's how I feel. Now, through Christ, I know what love is. And I can love you. Not perfectly, and probably better in a couple years than now, and better in a couple years from that than then. But now we know. And since we know, we have a responsibility to live according to that knowledge. In faith, faith, through grace, by the power of the Spirit. Relying on Him to do it, to do it through us, and to grab hold of that by faith, not simply sitting there and just saying, at any moment, he's just going to move me like an action figure, and I'm going to love you. No, but laying hold of, through faith, what he said, and walking in that. And again, numerous examples throughout history, throughout the Bible, of people saying, okay, this is how Christ loved loves. This is how he did it. These are some examples. So in this situation, maybe I should do that thing or approach that person this way or give to that person in that way or whatever it may be. And then you're walking in love because the spirit empowers you to do so. So concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's very encouraging. The Apostle Paul is telling them, you guys get it. And not only do you get it, but God himself taught you. That's how I know you got it. In John 6.45, Jesus Quoting Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31, John 6, 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's pretty incredible that we can engage with the teacher who is God himself who has all knowledge and reveals all 
mysteries and, and has all love and, and would desire to teach you. In the ancient world, right, in, in, in Paul's former days when he was living as a Pharisee, uh, you, you gained credentials or standing by uh, the teacher that you sat under. And guess what? We really haven't changed much in our seminaries today, in Christian seminaries. People like to add that to their resume, and it, and it surely can mean something. But is it, is, it, is it greater to say that you were taught by God or that you were taught by Dr. So-and-so? It is greater to say that you were taught by God. I think of maybe my favorite verse in all the Bible, Acts 4.13, when, when they recognized uh, that, that Peter and John were simple fishermen. But the fact that they had this boldness to proclaim this grace and this mercy in the name of this Nazarene carpenter and, and to voice these things and articulate these things made people recognize what? That they sat under so-and-so? No, but that they had been with Jesus. You, you know how you learn to love someone? You, you get taught from the Lord. You go to the source the primary source, if you will. You go straight to him and you say, okay, what's this look like? Well, if you've been a recipient of his mercy and grace, then, then you know what it looks like. And you, and you press into that more and more and how that is sustained and how that's lived out for someone's good for the rest of their days. You, you learn from him yourself. And one of the great promises in the Old Testament of the new covenant that is to come in Jeremiah 31, in, in verse 33, as he says this, what Jesus says is no one's going to have a need for someone to say, hey, no God, but God himself will teach you. God himself will teach you. You need to chew on that for a minute. You need to think about what that means. And I'll tell you what it does mean. That when you read or listen to a reading of the Bible by God himself in spirit, he can teach you these spiritual truths in his word. One of my sons asked me the other day, how does God speak to you? I said, open your Bible. He's, he speaks there. He teaches me there. He lets me know how to love, what love looks like, what love does not look like, how he loved. And then he empowers me to take that and do it. So it's an amazing thing to be taught by God. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, was not somebody who was a learned man. I think he left school in sixth grade. But one of, one of the greatest preachers ever described John Bunyan as basically bleeding the Bible. It coursed through his veins. The Lord taught him, spoke to him here, empowered him, equipped him, and made him into the effective evangelist and teacher that he was, not only for his time, but even today. I heard a spurt, uh, a spurt, a quote from Spurgeon this week. 
in, in which he was telling his congregation to not rely on his ministry. And he said something to the effect of, I have taken no degree. I've sat under no great teachers. I, I, I'm not of supreme intellect, which I would argue he is. And, and he was telling them, rely on God to teach you, to speak to you, to make these things known to you. I was telling somebody this this week that um, you aren't the main convictional teaching force in someone's life. The Holy Spirit is. God is. So trust that. Trust him to do that. Ask him to do that. And he will. He will. That's what he does. Taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Macedonia is the region where Thessalonica was. It's, it's, it's Greece, essentially. It's Italy. It's that, that whole place, the northern part. And then Acacia is also part of that. And so this whole region, he's, and he says, you're doing that to all the brothers throughout this whole region. He made known earlier that, hey, your faith or your love for one another is essentially what it's translated to be, is being made known throughout this whole place. That's incredible. This church amongst the whole world, amongst all these other churches, is known. Not because they have the best sanctuary, or not because they have the most well-known preacher, or not because they have the greatest facility, whatever. It's because of love they're being made known. That's amazing, because if people know you because of love, they, they know you in a way that glorifies God, not in a way that glorifies you. And the glory that we want here is not our own, that's already promised, that's already guaranteed in Christ in heaven, but we want God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Make your name more holy here so that people see it, give you the glory, recognize their sin in light of your holiness, and are saved. If they see my glory, I'm really afraid what they'll gain from that. Uh, nothing. But if they see God's glory, they may gain eternal life. That's what we want. Anyways, rabbit trail. But uh, they're loving the brothers throughout Macedonia. In Romans 15, 26, and 2 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, Paul's making mention there of support that he or others have received for their mission work throughout the rest of the world. And they've received it from the brothers in Macedonia. Now, who do you think, according to the context of this letter and the fact that Romans and 2 Corinthians were written after this letter, who do you think that support is being driven by? The Thessalonians. So when Paul says, love your brothers more and more, you're doing it. You're loving the brothers in Macedonia. And then he's receiving help in Rome, and he's receiving help in Corinth from the brothers in Macedonia. They have just done it. They've gone more and more, and they've expanded their love out to the rest of the world. 
so when you follow the history of the Bible, which is, which is partly why I wanted to do the chronological reading plan with you, is we get to see things like that and put those pieces together. Okay, um, you know, he says that they're loving each other, they're loving throughout Macedonia, and then later on he's receiving support from Macedonia for his work in the rest of the world. It must be in part or a major part driven by them. So we know that there's success, there's, there's growing in Christ-likeness from this place, from these people. And it, and it manifests itself in love, in love. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And then he gets into the day-to-day practicality of how they are to keep on in a life that honors Christ But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. So let's break that down a little. To aspire is to to have an ambition or to have a drive. And the drive is what? Not to be loud and boisterous and to make a scene and to set the world on fire, but no, to live quietly. What we're going to get into here in these last verses is, you know, we're thinking big, right? By this time, we're encouraged and we're zealous and we're like, okay, this is happening. It's going to happen. God's doing this. He's at work. Let's just bust the doors down. Let's, let's storm the gates of Hades and let's build Christ's church. And then he says, have ambition to live quietly. And you're like, well, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking we do this a little bigger, right? And why is that? If you think of us, as the Bible labels us, ambassadors, messengers for Christ, And if we're not the ones building his church, but Christ is building his church, and he made that promise, then he, as the head, as the Lord, as the king, is able to properly dispatch and place every one of those ambassadors and messengers to accomplish his will of building his church. So when he places you somewhere and gives you an assignment, You don't have to think that you're going to take on the world for Jesus. You're going to fulfill your assignment to be an ambassador where he's placed you and what he's placed you there to do. And it changes our whole outlook on our daily life. And I've I've mentioned it before, that, that book I have on those prayers, those daily liturgies, even for changing diapers and taking out the trash and doing the dishes and starting the first fire of the winter season. I mean, it has everything. It seems absurd to some point. But actually, it's not. Because we recognize that all of life lived faithfully for Jesus, and whatever you're doing and wherever you are is is according to his purpose to build his church. So you may be working in a factory, or you may be working in an office, or you may be working at home right now, or you may be working uh, as a, at a car dealer, or you may be working um, on the farm, or you may be working, wh- I mean, in school, wherever. I don't know, wherever, everywhere. 
You're there as an ambassador for Christ. And some of you are like, I want to be an ambassador somewhere else. And I get that, right? But that is putting our eyes on our flesh and putting our eyes on what is seen and not allowing the Lord to work through us to do what he's called us to do where he's called us to do it. You don't know the glory that is going to be unleashed by you being faithful to the things that Paul's talking about, especially to love. If you do that, you don't know what's going to happen where you are. You don't know. Talk to a million missionaries throughout the centuries who have found themselves in places that may be difficult, may be hard. Talk to some of these churches in the Bible. Talk to the church at Smyrna. In the situation where they're facing intense persecution and ask them, what happened that caused fruit where you were? And they'll most likely tell you, we followed the Lord in love where he said to go. If you watched that film with us last night, you recognize that at one point Richard and Sabina were taking jam to their neighbors across the street. And they were taking jam and they were just pressing into them quietly. Knock, want some jam? We're your neighbors. We love you. Nope, don't want it. Okay. Knock, come again. Hey, we still got some jam. Would you like some? And then people start to see that this quiet family wants nothing more than to love like they've been loved and to comfort like they've been comforted and to give like they've been given to. For no other express purpose than that it's put in their heart to be merciful and gracious just like the Lord was to them. And you don't have to do it with a big banner and a big sign and a big party. You can do it in your living room with some chips and dip, with whatever. You can do it door to door. You can do it at your work. As long as the love of Christ is present in your heart, then wherever you go, you may be involved in making an eternal difference for the kingdom of God. And it's a hard thing for us to hold on to a lot of times, but it's brilliant. And it works. Live quietly, peaceably. Mind your own affairs. You know, I was somewhere down in the city. I won't say what part this week. I had to go to a different eye doctor. But anyways, um, I noticed something while I was sitting there. I, I noticed it was kind of a depressed area. And I noticed that everybody sitting in there, because it was taking a long time, had a problem. I mean, everybody has a problem. Everybody. But they were voicing their problems. They were grumbling. They were complaining. And I noticed something. Their problems were always outside of themselves. It was always this person or this ex-person or this person or this person, this person, this person. 
It was never in and of themselves. And you know what I've noticed about people that seem to get along in life peaceably and somewhat successfully? They don't talk about other people's problems. They know they got their own. They work on that. And so if they're focused inward on the problems that they have, they can focus outward on the love that they can give. They can know how this gets dealt with. And when they know how this gets dealt with, then they can go to somebody else and say, you know, there's help for you. There's grace for you. There's mercy for you. And even if the world seems like it's against you, God communicates that he is for you. Do you believe that? Mind your own affairs. Something, mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands, they kind of go hand in hand, right? Because (laughs) people that are so outwardly focused on things that everyone else is doing, doing to them specifically, they're usually people that aren't very busy, right? Not very busy. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verses 10 through 11, it says, For even when we were with you, We would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, gossips, murmurs, clamoring, grumbling. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 is what I just read. And that that goes hand in hand. Minding your own affairs and working with your hands. Staying busy with the assignment that he's given you does not allow you the time to sit there and, and come up with thoughts and think of your own flesh and think of your own problems and think of however people are doing you wrong or injustice. It, it, it keeps you focused on the assignment that the Lord has given you. And it allows you to reach out in grace and mercy, not being busybodies. That's a bad thing in the Bible. One commentator says it this way. He says, in warning us to mind our own business, Paul is not giving us an excuse to neglect the needs of others. When it comes to suffering, sickness, poverty, and affliction, our brothers and sisters' concerns are our business. The same is true for fellow Christians who are wandering from the faith or falling into flagrant sin. Hebrews 3.13 urges us to exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Usually, the harmful busybody and the useless idler are the same person. In what I just read from 2 Thessalonians chapter chapter 3, Paul says that those who walk in idleness, not busy at work, are the very people guilty of being busybodies. Alexander McLaren laments that nothing dries up sympathy and practical help more surely than a gossiping temper, which is perpetually buzzing about other people's concerns and knows everybody's circumstances and duties better than its own. On the other hand, those who are most closely engaged in meeting real needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, are least disturbed by individual differences and are most eager to cover a multitude of sins with Christ-like love. That's our 
pain. We're not to sit here and say, look what they're doing to us. Look what they're enacting now. Look at what is happening out there. Instead, it's to look outward and say, look what they need. Look what they're lacking. Look what they don't know. And he, Paul says that, so that, so that, right? Why would you do that? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In other words, you can refer back to Matthew 5 and verse 16, where Jesus is instructing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine so that they see your good works and glorify your Father. If you're consumed with the work he's given you to do, in and of itself will be an opportunity to evangelize somebody who is watching you do what you do the way you do it. We, at work, whatever your work is, even if it's not necessarily with your hands, which is a figure of speech here, is, is uh, if you do it with integrity, if you do it with zeal, if you do it as unto the Lord as is prescribed in this book, then you will give opportunity for the Lord to be glorified. And is there any greater thing that you can do than to bring glory to the Lord? No. And there's not one way to do it, which is good news. Like, I don't have to have that job or that job or be in that position to glorify God. I can glorify God with whatever it is I do. It's amazing. This book, this chapter, and this book will end with discussions about the return of Christ. I told you every chapter in this book talks about the return of Christ. And what Jesus wants to find, he's told parables about this. He wants to find his people engaged in what he's given them to do. Parable of the talents. He wants to see them taking what he's given them and investing in what he's called them to invest in or who he's called them to invest in. And we run into this problem all the time. We were just talking about this this week. When people speak about the end times, they never get to what the application is if they truly believe it's the end times. The application, according to the Bible, that if you believe Jesus is coming back within the reign of our current government, then get to work. There is no need to sit around and talk about, oh, there was some blood moons, and we better keep track of those, and then Jesus is going to go. No. Stop listening to John Hagee and these people who are obsessed with this stuff. Jesus is coming back. That's a guarantee. You don't know when it is. That's a guarantee. And he's called us to work with the assignment that he's given us. Martin Luther's famous for saying, if he knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, he'd plant a tree. Kind of a silly quote, but you got to understand what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to fulfill my assignment. I'm going to do what he's called me to do. 
Paul says later on that I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And it doesn't matter when Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. It matters what you're doing, right? What you're doing for the kingdom. And somebody else can't do it for you. You have to do it. And don't think that what he's given you to do is any small thing. Whether it's raising children at home. Whether it's caring for the sick. Whether it is serving an unruly boss. Whatever it is. He's given his children an assignment. And he's the king. And he reigns. And he's the one that you're worried about glorifying and pleasing, not man. So give what you have where he's called you to give it. And the Lord will be glorified. And you will be found a good and faithful servant when he returns. Amen. As you meditate and respond to the word of God, um, pray that you would press in deeper to repent of your flesh and how you have obeyed its passions and that you would call the Lord to reign supreme in all of your members to bring him glory.